House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. Dave Martino, finished beating up his dad, is in the room now. <laughs> That's my martial art video, yep. I can't believe you're beating your dad up and putting it on. <laughs> it's training. 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 Well, training to beat up my dad. <laughs> you're, training, you're beating him up, practicing karate on your dad. Yeah. Good guy. He just, you know, he's not. He was my original yet. teacher. You know. Oh yeah. No. Well, <laughs> anyway. Well, we got an old, uh, old, old buddy coming back here. So we got. Um, yeah. He's uh, contributed to the show, and he's done some interviews, and now he's and he's been on as a guest, and he's a guest again. He's got a new edition pro bono. Uh, the Fugate Files came out in February of this year, and it's kind of an update of the first book, which is under the same title. So, Mr. Jeff MacArthur, thank you for being here. Hey, thanks for having me again. I'm glad I didn't anger you too much last time. Oh, you could never anger me. No, can't, can't get enough of you. There, there was that time that I smacked Dave's uh, father, but it sounds like he's doing that too, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he does it for hits, and he's talking about clickbait. He gets two hits out of everyone. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah, watch me throw my dad on the ground. Boy, that's a really good angle. That's a good angle to take out your dad, right? You know. Yeah. Yeah, we were just training. Yeah, that's really good. <laughs> well, Jeff, so what's been going on with you now? You, um, I didn't even realize you had written the, the first pro bono book back in 12. For some reason, I've never noticed it before, which is strange for someone like me. So this is quite a case. The Starkweather, Charlie Starkweather, and back from the late 1950s, 58, I believe it was, and they call it the big killing spree that he was on, and at the time he had his 14-year-old girlfriend. Yeah. In this time period, I mean, it was in Nebraska, and uh, this ended up being kind of portrayed in the 1973 movie Badlands, if I remember right, and also Nebraska, the song by uh, Springsteen, of course, is kind of based on this as well. So all of this stuff. Now, in general, the public never saw her too good. So this is kind of what you're talking about in the book, and, of course, we you're on the new documentary called the 12th victim and it's on showtime paramount depending on where you are and right correct what access you have to those streaming networks so now let's let's get into this case and let's get into how you are connected to it so yeah i uh, i literally grew up with the case because my grandfather was uh appointed as carol fugate's attorney of course i you know just was uh, exposed to it from a little kid. My my father later be, uh, became an attorney, and the, the case went on for so long that he actually went to uh, college and law school and became an attorney himself and became her, her lawyer, basically joined with my grandfather. And together they eventually got her uh, released from prison after 18 years you know, behind bars. And so, I mean, this is also such a legendary case within Nebraska. Everybody there knew about it then and still knows about it because, you know, it's, it's been around for so long. It's been such a major thing uh, there. So, you know, I would hear about it in the community and from my own family. And we always had this obviously different perspective because so many people in the state saw her as being guilty. She had always been portrayed as being his, uh, you know, killer girlfriend, and it was the new Bonnie and Clyde, and they went out together and were romantic, you know, as they went around killing a bunch of people. But 
I always saw behind the scenes, which was, first of all, she had broken up with him, and that was actually what put him on the, on the murder spree, was her breaking up with him, and then two days later, he goes over, kills her family, takes her with him, and kills all these other people. And in some, in some pieces of evidence were simply the fact that she was so small and, and not, like, physically weak that she wasn't even able to hold up the guns that she was accused of using, uh, let alone, you know, shoot them. And in fact, the police, they, they did not charge her with murder because they knew that she would not have been able to, to commit any of these murders. But they, they had charged her with accessory to murder through the, the murder spree because she was, basically because she was there. And because there were a few points when she could have maybe escaped if you really, you know, Monday morning quarterback. And so because she didn't do what nobody else could do. She because she didn't stop him, and because she didn't escape until the end. She actually did escape at the end, and that's literally how they caught Charlie. They charged her with uh, with murder or with with uh, accessory to murder, and she was uh, she was put in to, given life in prison at the age of fifteen. I think with the case, like he was nineteen, she was fourteen, and um, so they were kind of a romantic couple. They were, you know together for a while and they broke up and they kind of had typical young love um lots of drama and stuff so however the case was he ended up shooting 11 people or killing 11 people on this rampage before he was caught and she was with him the whole time the other thing i think that kind of uh, people don't take into account or they should think about is first of all she's a 14 year old girl and this is the 1950s so though she was considered a hard-looking girl, as they say on the series. She was a hard babe. She was only 14, and there there's quite a bit more, she was quite a bit more naive in those days. I'd say she's a lot more innocent than a 14-year-old today. But, um, so people have to take that into account. I, I think the negative thing is because she was so rough-looking, you know what I mean? She she was real, she she snarled at people, she was not smiley or happy, and she seemed to be very, I don't know what you because she had that attitude. And I think that was probably a lot of the problem as well. Well, all of the jurors, when asked why they convicted, the answer was always because she looked guilty. They never cited any evidence. There really wasn't any. It was always just, well, she looked guilty. And that was partially my grandfather's fault. He had been a, a divorce attorney, and so he was used to people going on the stand and getting emotional and you know, basically ruining their own cases by getting overly emotional. And he thought with a 14-year-old girl that she was going to be overly emotional and, and cause herself problems by getting really upset and all that, especially because Charlie was actually going to be there in the courtroom at, at certain times. Uh, and so he had told her to not get too emotional. Well, that kind of backfired because she, her mother had always been about be stoic and always taught her when you, uh, you know, when somebody tries to rattle you, you know, be stoic and, and don't show any emotion. And so that really triggered something in Carol's mind to, okay, be very stoic and, you know, uh, and don't show anything. And also my grandfather himself was a very unemotional looking kind of person. You know, he tried, he was one of those people who was always, you know, high, don't, don't wear your, uh, wear your heart on your sleeve and all that sort of thing. So unfortunately it wound up being, uh, being bad advice. I mean, he was in general a very good attorney, did, you know, fact, but he was very much about the facts. And when you look at the way he lays out the facts, you know, it's all very much correct when you just see it on paper. But a lot of times, people in courtrooms don't listen to the facts very much. They they think they they think very emotionally, and they go, "Well, this person looks guilty, so let's let's put her behind bars for the rest of her life." 
kind of a thing. And that's kind of the wrong way to do it, but I think it happens a lot. I think a lot of times when you come across a certain way, they just think of you that way then. And so, you you know, she probably had to fight the the uphill battle of trying to to win over people, and she wasn't trying to do that. That wasn't going to work. So, And and the other thing is, too, like you mentioned, Bonnie and Clyde, and, and some of the other gangster couples that were made famous from what they had done, you would assume over 11 murders that she would at least know about them. Do you know what I mean? Like, like if you and I are going out and we're on a, you know, driving through Nebraska into Wyoming and back again, and I'm doing shooting all these people and killing them like 11 in total, you would think you would know or be aware of it? You know what I'm saying? So I think that's the other issue. Well, she knew. Uh, I mean, he, he shot the farmer literally right in front of her. Uh, the first, actually, I should uh, qualify as one, because that was always the, the tricky uh, aspect. The very first murder he did was in December uh, of the year before, and that it was a gas station attendant sort of outside of town and all this sort of thing. Uh, and several people went to the police and said, we, we uh, think he did it. They, they were, there was reason to know he had hung out at the gas station. Other people from the gas station had known about it. He used the money that was like the exact change from the gas station to buy something, and the person at, the, at a store said that and described it, and the police never followed it up. And, and uh, Charlie even said to them later, if you had caught me then... Uh, none of this would have happened. And there was even an, a federal investigation of the police, uh, of the Nebraska police, or the Lincoln police, uh, sorry, Lancaster, because it's the county, because of that, because they had not followed that up. Now, in her case, again, it's, you know, she didn't even know about it because she's a 14-year-old girl, not even watching the news, all that. But when she came home, he was there with a gun and told her that, because her parents weren't there, he said, they, I, uh, some friends of mine have them, and if you don't do everything I tell you, then I'm going to call them and they're going to kill them. Now, one might go, well, because he shot them in the house, well, where, why didn't she see the blood and all that sort of thing? He apparently had cleaned it up so well that the police didn't even find blood. So, uh, so yeah, he, she was in the house where her mother, uh, uh, stepfather, and maybe half-sister had been killed. But again, yeah, they, they, even the police later on did not see any blood there. So she didn't see that. But then when he got her into a car and then drove out to the, out to the country, he went to this farm and this far, and they got stuck in the farmer's yard. This was January where, you know, it's so snowy and muddy and all this sort of thing. Their car got stuck. And, uh, so he went into the farmer, asked him to help him get it done stuck. So the farmer walked over to get some horses and Charlie just lifted the gun right there and shot him, uh, right in front of Carol. And then he turned, and then, and then he beat the dog's, uh, the uh, farmer's dog to death with the gun, and then uh, turned to her and said, "If you, uh, if you try ever try to escape from me, I'm going to kill you too." He did, so up to that point, he was saying he was threatening her parents, but now he was saying, "If you try to escape, I'm going to kill you." And then later on, when they uh, they um, were walking along the the road, uh, the country road, these two teenagers picked them up, saw them. You know, again, January nighttime, freezing cold. They picked them up, essentially willing to, you know, help them. Uh, and that's when Charlie pulled the gun on them and said, okay, take me to the storm cellar. And they drove, uh, they drove him to, over to the storm cellar and he took them over to, into the storm cellar and Carol heard the gunshots. So she knew she, that he killed them as well. But I mean, it's, now it's a matter of why, of, you know, her wanting to escape, but she's out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, you might as well be in the middle of the ocean when you're talking, Middle, you know, middle of the country in Nebraska, middle of the night, freezing cold outside. She really has nowhere to go. And essentially all the different places that, that they went, there really is, is no way to escape without him, you know, 
throwing a knife at her or something. I mean, basically got back in the car, went, or he, when he finally came back, got back in the car, they went into Lincoln and went into the home of this wealthy couple. Uh, well, actually, they went into Lincoln and they did sleep in the car for a while. And there's one of those times where somebody could legitimately say she should have tried to escape while Charlie was asleep. And that's fair enough, but try opening one of those doors from one of those cars from the 50s without the person next to you, you know, waking up. And the test is, if you manage, you know, if you end up waking that person up, you're dead. It's not, it's not a, oh, you're going to be punished or something like that. It's like you will be killed. And then they're inside of the house for a while. And then at that point, it was a husband, wife, and their maid. The husband was gone. He was ironically meeting with the governor at that time. The wife is there, Clara Ward. And essentially, she she basically keeps him calm. She knows who he is. She knows that by this point, the news has gotten out. This guy's around, you know, killing people. So she makes him sandwiches. And at one point, he allows her to go up upstairs. And he's up, and she's up there for something like 40 minutes or so, out of his sight, completely away from him. So the, here's a 40-some-year-old woman, or I think it was, she was exactly 40, 40-year-old woman, out of sight, out of his sight for a long time, for the better part of an hour. There's a working telephone up there. There's there are windows. You know, she could signal somebody. She could try to escape, but she doesn't. Does that mean she was, you know, helping him? Of course not. She, you know, he ended up killing her. But during that time that she, you know, she could have escaped but didn't. But going by the logic that people have of, well, Carol was was guilty because she didn't try to escape. Well, then then they're saying that this other woman was guilty because she didn't try to either. But it's been proven over and over again. In fact, there was just the case yesterday. I forget what it was, but it was it was restated through this 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 other case that a person doesn't have to have the gun on you the entire time for you to feel threatened, for you to feel like you can be killed. And so the few, very few moments that Carol was away from him for a little bit, where she technically could do something, again, if you Monday morning quarterback, everybody's the hero until they're in that situation. Technically, yeah, maybe she could have, but you know, it's it's a matter of if you if you're wrong he's going to kill you and that that is the way that the mindset works is when when somebody has threatened you a lot of times people won't even try to take the time to escape because they're just too afraid well uh, speaking of mindset th- those murders were some of them at least were especially brutal especially to women did they ever find out uh, if anything happened to him if there was some abuse in his background or if it was just that that he was psychotic uh he never anything sexual abuse that has never been you know found out but abuse in general his parents were not exactly the most you know close care i mean for one thing they were allowing him to date a 14 year old and never you know pointing out that hey maybe this isn't the right you know exact right thing um, he had also had certain types of trauma, like he was hit in the head with a, a two-by-four at one point, uh, and not like buddy kind of thing, but like m- massively hit. He was pigeon-toed, bull-legged, and bright red hair. I mean, it, the way my dad described it is he's, he's only ever seen two people with that bright red hair, him and Lucille Ball. So if you've ever seen in color pictures of Lucille Ball, that's how bright a red hair he had. Uh, and so people constantly mocked him. He was, and this is also during a period when a lot of the time teachers would not interfere with that sort of thing. You know, now you have a, maybe a little bit too much on the other side of Cotland, but uh, at that time, the, the, you know, just basically the mental abuse was constant of people just always making fun of him. And Carol was kind of his escape from that. So when she broke it off with him, that he, and he had also been evicted just before that as well. And so that kind of was what made him snap was, you know, his only lifeline was gone. So we don't know why he killed these people. Not really. And I mean, Carol, actually, for many years, I actually remember seeing her talking in, in several interviews. I mean, during the 80s, when I was a teenager, I saw some interviews. They actually did the um, 
a current affair uh, interview in my family basement. And she would, and people would ask her, and she'd go, I, I've never fully known why he did. However, she did think back on the murders that she did see, and she did remember, like, something that the person would say that, that uh, defied them. And if you ever see the, the TV movie um, Murder in the Heartland, which is based on this, you'll see every time that there's a murder, somebody says something that is a little bit hurtful. It's not even like they're, you know, picking on him or anything. It's just they say something that sets him off. And because my my father mentioned that to the producer, and so they put that into the script of every time that he kills somebody, they, they did some little bit of uh, defiance. And the reason why it's particularly confusing is because there was one person who went up to them and Charlie did, and, and spent some, a little bit of time with him and was able to walk away and Charlie didn't kill him. And that was where Carol was confused. She was like, if he killed everybody around us, why didn't he kill that guy? And, uh, because it, where it was, it was between after he had killed the farmer and before the teenagers, he got the car stuck, or the way he got the car unstuck was somebody else just happened to be walking by and Charlie, rather than shooting him, asked him to help him push out the car. They got the car pushed out and then, the guy continued on, and Charlie and Carol drove away. Uh, and then he got stuck again, and then that's when the teenagers found them. You know, it's like, why didn't he kill her, that, that one guy? Well, he apparently barely said a word, whereas the others maybe have, had said something like, what was it, he, the one part after the rich people, after he killed the uh, the wealthy couple, because the father eventually came home and, and Charlie shot him. After the, he killed them, he got into a uh, he got into their car and drove westward, went to, to Wyoming, and then he pulled over, he heard that on the radio that they were looking for that particular car, so he got out and wanted to take the car of somebody who was parked along the side of the road. It was a traveling shoe salesman. And so he, he saw the guy sleeping in the car, and he went up, killed him, and tried to steal his car. Again, in, the, in Murder in the Heartland, the way they portray it is he goes up, and the guy wakes up, and Charlie says, I need your car, and the guy goes, no, and then he shoots him. That is po- probably more likely what happened, because it, had he just been asleep, Charlie might have, you know, I mean, according to what Carol was saying, it's quite possible he might have just dragged the guy out and said, go away, but because the guy probably defied him. Now, Carol wasn't, she was actually uh, in, still in the other car at the moment, so she didn't really see everything, and that's actually when she saw the police. She saw a police car behind a milk truck that didn't see Charlie, but she could see them, and so she jumped out and ran to them. So she didn't see the entire interaction, but she guessed later that the guy probably woke up and told Charlie that he wasn't going to give him his car. But that's that's kind of the guess. But aside from that, it just seems that he was angry at the world and just wanted to, to kill everybody. Yeah, that's one of the strangest things, because he, if he wasn't having sex with the, with, with the females that he was killing, and he was just killing people, it's, it's weird that you would kill, let's say, that rich couple, the wards, and then kill the maid. Right. She's just... A working stiff, you know what I mean. She works for rich people. She's not right. got anything. And if he's not after her because she's a female or just killing women, for instance, I, I just find that's kind of weird how he killed certain certain people. It, it's hard to put together a pattern. Yeah, well, and he was especially harsh on the women. The way that he murdered them was more personal. I mean, he, you know, yeah, the maid he stabbed multiple times. It's just that that's the the most horrific visual that I uh, of all of them. Oh, didn't he stab her in the vagina? Well, that's the that's the teenager. The the maid he tied to the bed and he stabbed her a whole bunch of times uh, while she just screamed and, and you know and he 
um, the Octide and couldn't couldn't go anywhere. With the uh, the teenager, I was I wasn't sure whether you know how much I should describe that because of how you know like um, it's one of those things where certain certain shows you really can't even describe it because it gets censored or whatever. But I mean, yeah, he stabbed up her vagina so far that it, it went like halfway up her torso. Um, it it's just horrific the way that you know the the, the brutal and sort of almost personal way that he murdered each of the of the women as opposed to the men. The men he usually just shot. The women, it was like he was angry with them. I wonder if he had something, someone he was angry, like his mother or something. That's the one that the people choose often, but it makes you wonder why he was so angry to do that. You know, that takes a lot. You're right, yeah, exactly. And he he, uh, he was, I mean, there, there's a possibility this matters as well, is that he was impotent. I don't know if that affects it. Um, in terms of the mother, it doesn't seem like she was any more unusually cruel or anything like that than most mothers. Um, certainly no more than the father. I, you know, so it's that one's. It's hard to tell exactly uh, beyond just a lot of times. You know, men who are angry at the world sometimes take it out in particular on women. But yeah, beside that, I, I just can't psychologically explain it unless because unless like you said he was because he was impotent maybe he blamed it on on the woman yeah. you know the females rather than himself right you know what i mean it's their fault yeah that he can't do it you know right. it's, it's hard to say what was going through his mind yeah did you know why he killed the gas station guy before all this it seems that that was straight up a robbery but it was weird because the the, the people at the gas station had been really nice to him basically every he got uh, evicted several times, and every time he would just go sleep in his car outside their station, and they always just let him. But there's one time he, he when he shot this guy, he took the, uh, he took the money with him. Um, nobody really knows because it was only him and the other person, and he, he he never really said what it was, but he did later on try to use the self defense because he he, would, he refused to use an insanity defense, which he would you know very much have been uh, um, right for, but. Uh, but yeah, he, what was it? He, he tried to always say self-defense and going along with Carol's story, it may be that at some point the guy tried to save his own life and, you know, either tried to run or tried to get the gun from him or something and, and Charlie shot him. But, you know, who knows? He might, because what happened is he didn't just rob him at the store. He actually had him come with him, get into the car and they drove a ways away. And it could be that, you know, the guy just, like I said, tried to run or, or or tried to get the gun or something like that. Or it could be that Charlie just, at a certain point, just decided, ah, screw it, I want to, I want to be a murderer. Um, unfortunately, we just don't know. So, yeah, and, and one of the particular things that's um, important that kind of mentioned, you know, in, in the uh, documentary series is about how things weren't done that would be to done today and the way they policed and as well as in the trial. Because we're talking the 50s, so... It was it was quite a bit more um, it was quite a quite a bit different back then. Like if this if this was to happen today and the way it would be policed and um, tried would be quite a bit different. Right, exactly. It was basically it was less formal, and I mean that both on a uh, uh, logistics of le of the legal system basis and in terms of uh, it being a somewhat small town. I mean Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, there's one part of the uh, of the trial 
where they, they wouldn't even put it into Murder in the Heartland because they, they just couldn't believe that, that somebody would actually, or that a judge would actually talk like this in court. It's, at some point when my grandfather tried to object to something, the, the judge went, now John, and, you know, talk like this. So there was an informality that existed uh, there. And in terms of rules, a lot of the rules that we take for granted today, like the basic right to a fair trial, these types of things came along in the 60s, in the 1960s. We just assumed those things existed before then, but they didn't. It was uh, the Miranda case, the, you know, the, uh, the one that we talked about, the, you know, somebody reading their Miranda rights. That did not exist until a case it was Miranda v. Uh, I think Arizona or something like that. Uh, that was dictated that you have the basic right to an attorney. Uh, at that time, you know, the, the police could just question you, could you know, be charging you with a crime, but not tell you that they're they're charging you, and just get you all this information out of you before you have an attorney. And Carol, a, you know, fourteen-year-old child, they did not give her an attorney for something like like around two weeks or more, and all the time asking her questions, never really telling her. They, they kept telling her that she could be charged, or you know, there are these charges that might be you know held against you or whatever, but they never actually told her you know, the seriousness of it. Uh, it wasn't until my grandfather was finally appointed to her. He was sitting there. She thought he was just some attorney going after, you know, that was going to be prosecuting Charlie, and she was helping them build the case against him. And he was like, no, no, I'm your attorney. And she's like, why Why do I need an attorney? And, and, you know, so they basically were just sort of abusing the system and, again, utilizing things that today, yeah, you'd have the protections that, uh, you know, that at least you, you were supposed to, follow and even though the police still don't always follow those sounds like also uh, that the police ended up uh, at carol's house uh, at her family's house um more than once and i'm just wondering if if any of that uh if any of the behind the scene things uh, ended up uh, factoring into her conviction uh well are you talking about before the murder spree uh, or uh correct yeah okay so yeah, so what happened was uh, when Charlie showed up, killed her family, put them in the uh, chicken coop behind the house in the, in the outhouse, the, uh, he kept her there, and the police... Actually, what happened first was the family members started showing up because they're just like, you know, when, when everybody sort of disappears and stops calling and all sort of thing, they start going over there. Both her family, like her grand, Carol's grandmother, and Charlie's family, his brother, started coming over, and his sister... Like, hey, what's going on? And she would meet them at the door and just tell them, everybody stick with the flu, you know, go away. And she had even had a note that says that everybody is sick with the flu, or go away, everybody stick with the flu, Miss uh, Miss Bartlett. And she underlined Bar uh, Miss Bartlett three times. And the only Miss Bartlett in the house was the two-year-old half-sister. Her mother was Mrs. Bartlett, and she went by Fugate. And so all the family members got it, knew, you know, could tell that there was something wrong. They could also see her pointing to the city, like she would put her hand by her mouth, but she'd point to the side. And so they all went to police, including Charlie's own family, went to the police and said, hey, something's going on there. You need to go check it out. But this was uh, this was the wrong side of the track, so to speak. They, back then, there was like, there's O Street to this day still goes right through the middle of town. And you had one side was the more well affluent side of town. The other side was the poorer end of town. And she was on the poorer end. And a lot of times that was that end the police just openly just kind of didn't care about and, you know, um, didn't want to bother with, but they finally, they kept pushing, kept pushing until you know, enough family members showed up. They finally went ahead and went there. And when she showed up you know, at the front and just said, everyone's sick with the flu, go away. They went, okay, and left. 
Uh, and they scolded the grandmother and said, you know, that your, your kids don't want to see you ladies stop interfering. And that was while Charlie and Carol were, you know, there at the house, which, again, everybody after that would have been saved if they had just done their job. But instead, they just kept telling everybody, you're crazy, you're crazy. Finally, uh, Charlie and, um, or Charlie's brother and Carol's brother-in-law broke into, I mean, basically when they, when, when that, uh, the grandmother left with the police, Charlie got spooked and that's when he got Carol into the car and they drove away. After that, Charlie's brother and Carol's brother-in-law broke into the house, went around and they found the, uh, bodies in the chicken shed in the outhouse. Uh, and that's when they called the police and said, we found three, three bodies. Now will you come out? And then the police came out and, you know, never admitted any wrong, but they realized they had screwed up. And as it, more and more bodies started showing up, they realized more and more, hey, we really screwed up. And they, that, that, they also learned that, you know, the, the murder in December was due to him and all that, and the investigation started after them. And so that was partly why they went after Carol, because it's sort of a distraction. You know, once they got Charlie, it's like, okay, very clearly, you know, he, he, he's at fault, and so we'll put... Uh, we'll send him to the electric chair when, uh, you know, but that wasn't, that really wasn't enough. And this investigation on them is going on. So they're like, okay, let's distract with, hey, this girl helped them as well. And, uh, you know, the newspapers, which were publishing stories about the investigation into why didn't they catch this guy earlier, suddenly turned to the new Bonnie and Clyde. And, and everybody kind of ignored the fact that these guys could have caught them earlier, but never did. Well, I think there's a way of, of, of doing it, too, where they really wanted to, to punish her for it as well. You know what I mean? So what, so what is it that you hope happens here? I mean, um, it sounds like she's been trying to get pardoned, and it's not been happening. So what is it you think will end up happening? I mean, she's, she's had a stroke, and she's pretty old now, right? She's in not doing well. So um, is she still trying to uh, fight for a pardon? Pardon was the, 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 was the last try. So she's really, and she knows she's never going to get justice. Uh, she tried for many, many years. She gave up at one point, and then... Another lawyer came along and said, hey, I think you, I can get you a pardon. And it, interestingly enough, the ward's own granddaughter, who's featured in the documentary, got to know Carol. Oh, she, she started investigating the story herself. She came to me and, like other people, trying to learn more about it. She had always believed Carol was guilty and then started really learning the facts and came around to, to feeling, especially because her own daughters had reached about Carol's age. And started, she started thinking, what if it was my own kids? And so she became very sympathetic to Carol, met her, got to know her, and so she actually helped with the, you know, trying to get her pardoned, and they went for it. Unfortunately, I knew all along that the pardon was never going to work. There's just too much emotion. You know, Nebraska, Nebraskans have just become too convinced that they've been told this lot, all these lies for so many years. There's still a mentality there of the police are always right, and so they can't handle the, the fact that maybe some of these guys were corrupt, and so they've just you know, there, there, it's just this stubbornness that's like, no, we, we can't admit that, that we were wrong about this. Their own egos are really wrapped up in it. And if they ever admit that, you know, oh, I was wrong, that's like admitting that you've been wrong about something for so many years. So ultimately, she's never going to get justice. I knew that the, that the pardon wasn't going to happen. But I did, you know, when I wrote the book, I, I basically kind of wanted to set the record straight because up to that point, all books and documentaries that were all portraying her as guilty and like these, these, untruths were going on when, when, uh, what was it, when she was in a car accident and people had thought she died, they, um, they, the news all reported, the girl from, from Natural Born Killers, the real life one was, was killed in a car crash and it was all over the news as if 
Natural Born Killers was some freaking documentary about her. And so anyway, so I just got this strong feeling that people just needed to know at least what the actual truth was. Uh, and that's why I published the first book uh, initially. I did the second one because some people were fascinated with some of the details, and we still have all this documentation just sitting at my dad's place, including, you know, uh, uh, notes from the uh, from the trials, the uh, transcripts, uh, evidence, and even death threat letters. You know, we just have all this stuff. So I published that in the second book, uh, the, the few gate files, as you said. So yeah, so in many ways, it's just kind of to keep the record, you know, straight. But more than anything, what I think the, is the importance of this case, and I end pro bono with this, or the first book with this, is that this this story really questions the very nature of guilt, of what is guilt, because. You know, if you look at it again from a Monday morning quarterbacking, from a from a um, logistical point of view, technically, yes, there are some things she could have done. There are also some things that Clara Ward could have done. Are we going to are we going to chastise these people, or are we going to consider people guilty for not having taken an action they could have? And if we are, you know, how much are we going to hold somebody responsible for not doing what what could have been done? And then, furthermore, how much are we going to attribute that to children? I think lessons like that. Are very important. I think that's what we, what really this case is more. What was more important about this case than anything is that fact. Is that question that we all should ask is what is the nature of guilt? What is the point at which we consider some someone to be responsible? And what do we expect from people? And and then how much do we attribute to children? And then we need to attribute that to all people everywhere and anywhere. Uh, so that's what I would like to see happen more than anything is for people to look at this case and attribute and use it as a lesson to make that question for themselves. Well, how did Carol reintegrate into society after prison? It must have been difficult. I, I assume she didn't stay in Nebraska. Yeah, and, no, she didn't. And in fact, that was part of the, unofficially part of the deal with the parole board was as long as she didn't stay in Nebraska. And she said, yeah, I don't want to stay. <laughs> so, so she moved to Michigan, I believe it is. It's, it's in that area, Michigan, Ohio area. And... Uh, basically, as she, as she put it, I just want to be a basic uh, little old housewife, and that's basically what she did. Uh, she didn't actually marry for a very long time. She didn't even want to date for sort of obvious reasons, and she uh, she just uh, kind of lived her life. She wound up, I mean, she never had children of her own, but she babysat a lot. She became a nanny. She, you know, took care of a lot of people. She In her church, she would take care of the children. She just very much, beca- and she became a nurse as well. So she, she very much became about taking care of people. And, yeah, pretty much everybody who met her would just be like, this is not the kind of person you would see as a killer. And she never had any kind of, you know, trouble with the law or whatever. And eventually uh, she did marry, uh, marry somebody who then, unfortunately, then died in a car accident a few years later. Yeah, when I saw that on the, it was, it's funny, it's, it's just the typical way people react at, you know, did she grab the steering wheel? Did she kill him? Like that was, that's just the way people are, you know? So, fr- it's, and you can imagine how frustrating that's been growing up with that, seeing what was behind the scenes, but growing up seeing people, because other people didn't know that I had this association with the case. So they would talk about it around me, having no idea that I knew that everything you were saying was BS. But just rumors just spread, and people want, you know, when people say social media has caused, you know, uh, untrue, has caused rumors to be spread and all that, I'm like, no, rumors always existed. They just didn't do it publicly. <laughs> and I, I grew up seeing it all the time. What do you think of the, the portrayals, but, you know, in the sense of, you know, like, um, 
you know, the Martin Sheen movie and, and even the Oliver Stone movie and, and all of that, the portrayals of it is always, I think it, it really resonates as well. It settles in people's brains and they just think that's who this person is. Right. In fact, to me, it's sort of exemplary of how to do something and how not to do something. Because uh, the way Terrence Malick did it, it I think, is, is exemplary. Uh, Badlands, I mean, what, whatever one might think of that movie, what I think that he did that was very responsible was to not make it based on the story. He, in fact, well, first of all, he actually came to Nebraska to meet with the people involved, and he met with Carol while she was in prison. Uh, and said, I don't want to do this unless I have your permission. And he made it very clear with everybody that he wasn't going to do the actual true story. He just wanted to take inspiration from the original story to create something new and different that is his own. And when it was released, Warner Brothers made it a rule to all movie theaters, you cannot advertise this as a true story, even though people know that there's some, you know, it's inspiration from this famous story it don't do not say it was a true story, and they actually sued theaters that did try to say it's based on a true story. Um, and yeah, Terrence didn't need to do any of that. I mean, he could have just done whatever and said, "Yeah, this is based on a true story," but he didn't because he felt a responsibility to you know, truth versus fiction. He had something else he wanted to to say, other statements he wanted to say, but he just wanted to draw from this. And even though he was only drawing from it, he still felt a responsibility to it. Compare that to Oliver Stone, who straight up just was like. Yeah, this is a true story, even though he knew there was no truth to it. In fact, Badlands has closer ties to the truth than the Natural Born Killers has nothing in common with it. But he still was willing to just go, oh, yeah, this is from a true story, um, and gave people the impression that this is what it was like, which is so uh, unbelievably irresponsible. And I even got to be in a little group. I was at NYU, and he talked to this little group of, like, 12 people, and he was talking about Natural Born Killers. Um, and so I, I was tempted to say something. I was like, no, you know, won't. But he, um, he, he talked about a bit about being a true story, but he also talked about how his cinematographer, who was a friend of his, uh, turned to him a, a couple times and said, this is how much I love you, Oliver, that I'll work on a piece of crap like this movie for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it's crazy, but that's kind of what it is. Um, so what, what are people, you've got a new version of the book out. So what, what's in the new version? What have you done? To, to create the new book. So it's not a written story. Instead, it's just images uh, of you know from the uh, from the event itself. So like newspaper clippings, um, the uh, trial transcript, or scenes, parts of the trial transcript, uh, letters, notes that uh, that my grandfather wrote, even letters that uh, or things that Carol had written. Like a couple times, she wrote notes to Charlie from because they were being kept in different cells. And, like, at first she's saying, uh, Charlie, I don't want to see you. I mean, certain things from the documentary, like at one point they refer to her saying, Chuck, 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 I don't want to see you, I don't want to see you, uh, Carol. Um, that, you know, that letter is in there. Because uh, my grand my father just kept all these things. He kept them in a box, uh, or a few boxes, and they were always at uh, the law office. And then for, like, a couple of decades, they were in his garage, and they were, you know how when you, you park your car, there's always, like, a line that you use of, like, okay, this is as far as, like, this is where the bumper goes, before, you know, this is how far I need to be before the garage door can close. That box was it. it so it just said Car uh, Carol file or Fugate files on it. And that's where you would, park, you know, park the car. That was sort of the measure of where you do it. And I, I, I realized at a certain point that this is, uh, these are historic documents. These are documents that, you know, a lot of people have been fascinated about this case or whatever. 
and we're taking it so much for granted just sitting there as our car as our uh, car stop. But yeah, so I, I finally and it was when a friend of mine came over and was just blown away. She's like, "You kept all these?" And we're like, "Oh yeah." And she just looked so thrilled, just going through them, was so excited, couldn't believe, you know, death threats that were sent to my grandfather were there. Uh, yeah, all the, you know, just all these different things. Some of it fading away and like, you know, difficult to see anymore because it was written on pencil. My grandfather liked to write with a pencil that was so dull he would he wouldn't sharpen them for a long time, and so it would just get really, really dull and light. Uh, and that's what he would, you know, write a lot of his notes, you know, while this stuff was going on. Uh, these sort of historic case was going on, um, you know, these things were being created. Well, did you know what your grandfather thought of her? Like, did he believe she was innocent or what? Did you know any of his thoughts on the on it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he was thorough. But he first, when he got assigned to it, he uh, he didn't really have any opinion on it. He saw, you know, he saw what the newspaper said and was like, okay, she, you know, Probably, but was involved, or you know, very likely, likely could have been. But he went on uh, when he was, um, oh, not assigned, but when he was appointed as the attorney, he took it. Every, a lot of other attorneys would not take it because they were afraid for their reputation. But he, his big belief was: you represent your client, you defend the Constitution, and so he was perfectly willing to defend her, even if she was guilty, because he's like, you, you defend the Constitution. This is about the system, not about the individual. And so he went there having no real opinion on whether she was innocent or guilty. But at, after she told him the initial story, and it, and it fit all of the facts, it matched every fact, he was thoroughly convinced of her, of her innocence. And he, was, uh, he became very angry with the, the legal system because he was convinced they were railroading her because there was no reason to think that she had been involved. They were just, well, she didn't try to escape. And then as he talked with them more and more, because he was friends with the prosecuting attorney, he started realizing more and more they were doing this really just to protect their own asses. Um, and so he was so thoroughly disgusted with the system that he refused their payment, and he continued to represent her for 18 years, you know, never getting paid by anybody. And, and that's the reason for the title pro bono, because pro bono is when you do work for free for somebody. So let's talk about where people can find you. Where do people find Jeff? Would you have a social media set up? Uh, do you have a website? And the book, I guess, is available anywhere. Yes, exactly. Uh, you know, Amazon or anywhere you can buy uh, e-books or paperbacks. Actually, it is Barnes & Noble, all those places. Um, as the site Bandwagon Online has all of my books on it, bandwagon, uh, bandwagononline.com. Uh, and then if you uh, look up Jeff MacArthur Author on either um, fa uh, Facebook or Instagram, uh, now that my Facebook is... is fixed i had a problem for a while i'm not on twitter i might go back on there at some point but it wasn't really doing any good for me and there you know i find that it has a lot of problems in general but but yeah instagram and facebook you can find jeff MacArthur author and bandwagon online is where you find all my books well of course we're going to have that up there as well so people can find you with one click and then we're all set so um, really appreciate you being on. And so what are you working on now? Anything different, uh, another book, or are you just going to promo this right now? Well, I'm right now just starting on one called The Entertainment Generation, which is a uh, book basically about my generation. I've always hated the name Generation X uh, you know, for multiple reasons. It's just a it's poor naming, and really the, the last several generation names have just been really, really dumb in my opinion. And so... I make the argument as to why we should be referred to as the entertainment generation, and also it'll be a book just basically about how 
our generation came out with like our biggest influences and you know in particular just how entertainment shaped uh who our generation what in particular was those of us who were born in the 60s and 70s well there you go well we appreciate you being on again and and catching up and uh thanks again you know or of course the uh the book is called pro bono and it's the fugate files that's different than the first one because you call it the carol fugate didn't you yeah defensive oh yeah the, the 18 year defense of caroline fugate is the first one yeah well perfect well jeff MacArthur, thank you for being here thank you so much for having me alan i i always enjoy being here thanks jeff you've been listening to the house of mystery radio show to find out more about our guests Hosts or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This is a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.